Freedom doesn't need more cheerleaders shouting partisan slogans. It needs thoughtful, principled disciples of liberty. Deep down, we all know that freedom and liberty matter. This is where we discuss why they matter. It's time to elevate the discussion. Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey, welcome to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. Thank you so much for joining us today. I want to thank Ammo.com for being one of the sponsors of the Loving Liberty Radio Network. And look, yes, you can stock up on ammunition and you can, you can find some terrific deals, tremendous selection, all of that. You can even save a little money in the process and, and help uh, freedom-supporting organizations like Loving Liberty. But... I also want to recommend jump on their website, ammo.com. It's really that simple. Check out some of the incredible articles that they have covering a very wide range of topics. It's it's not all guns. Some of it's gear, some of it's skills. But um, I can promise you'll be a better person for having taken the time to browse their library. So please check them out, ammo.com. Where shall we begin for this hour? Man, it's been it's been such an incredibly... Busy news cycle. Uh, this was an article that I, I thought was kind of interesting just because with with the talk about uh, some of the individuals dri- driven to uh, engage in mass shootings, lashing out at society. I've learned a new word. Maybe you've heard this before. Incel. Involuntarily celibate. Now, that used to describe pretty much, uh, you know, every guy who wasn't in a committed relationship or or married. But there's there this incel movement has kind of a dark undertone to it. In fact, there's there's something even a little bit disturbing. Jeff Minnick, writing about this for intellectualtakeout.org, actually refers to it as the He-Man Woman Haters Club. Welcome to the world of incel. He says, suppose you were a young man living in a society drenched in sex. Suppose movies featured erotic scenes of beautiful women making love with handsome men. Suppose magazines featured gorgeous models in advertisements. Suppose many books of fiction, some of which our parents and grandparents would have regarded as pornographic, featured vivid sexual acts. Suppose you could go online and immerse yourself in an ocean of pornography. Suppose you could visit dating sites and find hundreds of women looking for men. Oh, wait, he says, that's right, we do live in that society. Okay, well, given that culture, suppose you want sex, love, and marriage, but you can't get a date to save your life. The women on Tinder swipe past you. The women at school or work treat you like a ghost. The few women you do date don't return your texts. Your self-esteem is on the bottom of the creek bed. You look in the mirror and wonder, what's wrong? Are you socially inept? Shy? Do you have emotional or mental problems? Do you lack a power job or wads of money in the bank? Are you ugly? What can you do? You can join an incel community. Now, Jeff Minnick says, I'd heard of involuntary celibates or incels, but Gabrielle Williams led me to do some investigating in his article. Could the incel community be propelling mass shootings? And Williams points out that several mass murderers from the past decade had either direct or indirect ties to online incel communities, aiming their comments, their messages of hate, and sometimes their bullets, specifically at women. The most notorious of these killers was Elliot Rogers, who in 2014 left a manifesto declaring his hatred for women before killing six people and wounding 14. And here's the kicker. To some incels, Rogers is a hero. 
The Williams piece, the information found clicking on some of the links he provides and an article at Wikipedia left the following impressions. Jeff Minnick writes, there are a number of young men in America and in other countries who feel rejected by women. They want a relationship, but for scores of reasons, they can't make a connection. One of the prime arguments by incels for this failure is the 80-20 rule, that 80% of women find only 20% of men desirable as mates. On one of the sites linked in the Williams article, we find in the black pill section, a truckload of studies demonstrating that women prefer men who are handsome, tall, wealthy, and physically strong. That women are manipulative and, and oof, I got to try this one again, hypergamous. That nice guys finish last with the female of the species and much more. As we survey this woodpile of article of articles, rather, we realize it's intended as a bonfire of hatred and misogyny. Now, interestingly, it was a female university student, Alana, who founded the incel movement in the 1990s. She created a website designed to encourage men and women frustrated by their inability to find partners. Visitors to the site sympathized with one another, exchanged thoughts on dating and romance, and sought to build confidence among the marginalized or socially awkward. Times have changed. From its origins as a movement of hope and support, Alana gave up her website in 2008 and now regrets the ugly turn taken by some incel communities. Some of these sites today are just the domain of frustrated males who rage against women, successful men, and society in general. Rather than offering encouragement or wisdom to others, these men are, in Williams' words, millennial, socially maladjusted, angry, resentful, romantically, and sexually frustrated people. Now, we see enormous irony at play in this swamp of self-pity and rage. Unlike China, women outnumber men in the United States. The incel crew likes to cite the 80-20 rule as a mark against women, but they play the 80-20 rule themselves, only in reverse. They just don't want women to love. They want beautiful women to love. One suspects the homely checker at the grocery store, the overweight bank teller, or the woman selling beer and cigarettes at the 7-Eleven don't attract the interest of the incels. They want the sort of women they see in the movies or in their online porn. That is sad. So sad. Now, Jeff Minnick says, here are some suggestions for incels. First and foremost, he says, get off the phones and laptops. Ditch the self-pity and victim mentality. Drop the hangdog attitude and spiff yourself up. Expand your expectations. That barista in the coffee shop where you like to hang out and whine and rage with your online friends may be 80 pounds overweight. But talk to her. You may find she has the soul of an angel. That woman in your apartment building who gives you a furtive nod in the hallway and who will never make the pages of Vogue may be as shy and desperate for love and friendship as you. The woman you swiped on the way on the dating site because she didn't look sexy enough may be the most passionate lover you could ever meet. Here's one surefire way not to find a woman to love. Hang out in cyberspace with a bunch of losers hating on women. Dang, that's pretty direct. I don't know if you have some thoughts on this, but I would love to see, I'd love to engage in conversation on it. Cause it seems like it could, it could be a very intimidating world. I've, I've, uh, I've told my wife, you know, I, if anything ever happened to her, I don't think I, I'm not emotionally equipped. I couldn't go out there and, and date. I just couldn't do it. I'd have to, I would have to resign myself to, nope, it, it would be uh, the hermit's life for me. 
I barely made it through back when I was young and hopeful and marginally attractive. I don't think I could do it. I worry for my kids. I have a son who's, you know, getting ready to go to college. The next logical step in his life is meeting a girl, marrying, starting a family. Now, I have high hopes for him because, I don't know, genetically, he, he did okay. He's tall. He's handsome. He's smart. He's got a very bright future ahead of him. But I do worry for a lot of these young men in society who fit exactly the description that Jeff Minnick has described here. Angry, marginalized, lacking confidence. How do you help somebody overcome that? And, and, and probably as importantly, how do you help them overcome the false expectations that a multi-billion dollar advertising industry puts on them about what is attractiveness how do you overcome the 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 mind-bending education of porn which completely jades a person as to what are the what are the best qualities to look for in a woman in a in a mate in a spouse I don't have any easy answers here. I don't know that anybody does, but if you want to take a crack at it, here's the number, 801-331-8113. I will offer this small bit of advice here. The smartest thing that I ever did in my life when I met the woman who would become my wife is I kept my hormones out of the decision-making process, and that took a lot of effort to not allow physicality to become a factor. But my reasoning was this. I wanted to know that everything that I was feeling for her was, was real and not just my hormones cheering. And there came a point where I realized that, uh, that I, I really loved her and I was in love with her for all the right reasons. And a little bit after that, I opened my eyes and realized, man, she is really attractive too, but... The bottom line is, her attractiveness was not what I fell in love with first. And as time and gravity takes its toll on both of us, I can't tell you how grateful I am for approaching things that way. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. Brian Hyde at your service. 801-331-8113. All right. Where to go next? You ever had a sense that uh, common sense is is becoming, uh, well, maybe not so common? There's a terrific article from uh, Jason Sneed. Common Sense in Freefall on College Campuses. And, and this may not be a surprise to you, but I thought it was kind of neat to see it spelled out like this. Uh, the idea is that evidence is mounting that political ideologies corrupting the liberal arts. Now, I know liberal arts for a lot of people is kind of a punchline. Uh, you want fries with that? You got a degree in liberal arts? 
I was introduced to the liberal arts, I'm trying to remember how many years ago, 12, 15, maybe more years ago. And I have to admit, I had to do kind of an about face because I had that attitude of, well, you know, if you're studying liberal arts, you're just, you know, walking around in tights at the Ren Fair saying, forsooth, and methinks, and things like that. Nope. Nope. It turns out a person who is serious about studying the liberal arts is serious about becoming a well-rounded individual in their understanding of the world. And that means uh, they're, they're, they're studying a variety of topics. They have depth. They have breadth. They're not just hyper-focused on one little teeny specialty, you know, that goes a mile deep. Now, sometimes you want people who are like that. Okay, the, the brain surgeon who is removing a tumor from your brain. Yeah, you, you want him to be very, very skilled. His expertise needs to be at least a mile deep in that particular area. But, you know, what would it hurt for him to be well-rounded in other areas? And for those of you who say, well, it's just not possible. There's not enough time. No, there is. The tow truck driver who comes to pick you up when you're stranded alongside the road could be a very well-rounded, liberally educated person. Because the kind of education that, that we're talking about here in liberal arts doesn't have to take place in a college classroom. But let's get back to the colleges. This article on intellectualtakeout.org, Common Sense and Free Fall on College Campuses, says, according to campus reform in late July, Portland State University accused one of its professors, Peter Boghossian, of questionable, questionable ethical behavior and banned him from conducting academic research. Now, what was the professor's offense? He successfully convinced several prestigious peer-reviewed journals to publish articles that were anything but scholarly. He gamed them, but he, he played them at their own game. In one, he analyzed dog rape culture. In another, he republished portions of, adult, of Adolf Hitler's Mein Kampf spruced up with academic buzzwords. Now, the article points out this may sound like an off-color prank, but it was actually a very serious effort to expose a grave problem on college campuses. Boghossian's hypothesis was very simple. The leftist fixation on intersectionality, what he termed grievance studies, have led to a sharp decline in the quality and rigor of scholarship within the discipline. So Boghossian and his two colleagues, Helen Pluckrose and James Lindsay, made headlines in 2018 for completing an investigation into how lax some humanities journals had become. So this trio sat down and they wrote and submitted 20 hoax articles to several prominent academic journals in various academic fields, including gender and queer studies that researchers felt were the most influenced by progressive ideology rather than objective research. Are you sitting down? Seven of their fake studies were published after undergoing the purportedly scrupulous peer review process. And when that happened, Bogosian and his team released a report demonstrating how ideologically driven academia has become. So that's why he's being punished. He pulled back the curtain on some unpleasant truth and showed people to be ideologues. And the article here says it brings to mind the SoCal hoax of the mid-90s when a New York University physicist submitted a similarly fake study that also ended up being published. PSU's Internal Review Board then sanctioned Bogosian for fabricating data and studying human subjects, specifically the various journal editors, without their consent. 
right over the top of their heads. They missed the purpose of this professor's study. Now, the censure led directly to the ban that Bogosian now faces. The Academy seems more interested in making an example of him rather than acknowledging the concern about a lack of quality control in the field of grievance studies, which his efforts unveiled. And it's not as if most citizens are unaware of the issues plaguing higher education. From the oft-referenced replication crisis in the social sciences where academic studies can't be reproduced by unaffiliated researchers to the insane cost of college and the liberal bent of a staggering percentage of university professors, many students would do well to reconsider the value of attending college over trade schools or other similar skill-developing opportunities. Now, Bogosian's study revealed that the dangerous, the dangerous road, rather, that academia, academia is sprinting down. He cited constructivism, the idea that truth is temporally and culturally situated as the main culprit infecting academic research, especially within the humanities. The research team noted that radical constructionists, or radical constructivists, rather, believe, tend to believe that science and reason must be dismantled to let what they call other ways of knowing have equal validation as knowledge-producing enterprises. And this idea could be what's driving many academic journals down the ideological rabbit hole. As Bogosian and his team stated in their study, as we progressed, we started to realize that just about anything can be made to work, so long as it falls within the moral orthodoxy and demonstrates understanding of existing literature. How scary is that? Scholars across the world agreed with the author's motives and conclusions. They wrote to Pacific State University's or Portland State University's vice president for research administration in support of Bogosian. Even Alan Sokol, the NYU scientist who got in hot water for his similar effort in 1996, defended the beleaguered Portland professor, writing, It seemed to me that it would be a grave injustice to punish Professor Bogosian for a violation of the letter of the research misconduct policy, that did not constitute in any way a violation of that policy's purpose, and which moreover was undertaken with the goal of serving, and which did in fact serve the public interest. End quote. Well, unfortunately, but unsurprisingly, given the university's uh, administration's reaction, many of Bogosian's fellow professors at PSU were not as supportive. In an anonymous letter to the editor in the university's newspaper, the anti-Bogosian group wrote, The hoaxes are simply lies peddled to journals masquerading as articles. Chronic and pathological, unscholarly behavior inside an institution of higher education brings negative publicity to the institution, as well as the honest scholars who work here. Worse yet, it jeopardizes the students' reputations as their degrees in the process may become devalued. I'm just going to let that sink in for a moment. He blew the whistle on the fact that uh, that any study as long as it contained the right you know ideological buzzwords could be scurried through that process tell me that wouldn't devalue the degrees of these students and their reputations as well as the honest scholars who work there he blew the whistle on wrongdoing and they're making him out to be the bad guy i guess he's being snowdened 
Well, Bogosian's aggrieved colleagues seem to have missed the entire point of his study, says the article. They may prefer for their students to to, to learn from such indoctrination. Bottom line is his experiment highlights the problems of groupthink in any environment, but especially in academia. If humanities professors are going to be more interested in placating popular opinion rather than exposing shoddy academic practices bordering on charlatanry, then we should stop describing our humanities departments as bastions of truth. Truth is objective. It's not subject to the prevailing winds of academia and the left at large. Stifling academic debate, exercising a heckler's veto over messages that don't fit within an ideology prescribed by liberal academics, and promoting shoddy research? That's a very poor goal. The search for truth is what they're really trying to, to do. Why don't they help that happen? Timely, credible, thoughtful discussion without the partisan outrage. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Welcome back to Loving Liberty, 801-331-8113. Don't forget, coming up, it is Beth Ann Schoenberg joining us from the Common Sense Coalition Radio Network, CSC Radio. Uh, Her show kicks off at 9 o'clock Mountain Time here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Uh, C.L. Bryant will be holding forth from 10 until noon. The Joe Carey Show coming your way at 12 noon. And it's a best-of program, but uh, Larry Reed and the Reed Hour with our great friend from the Foundation for Economic Education coming up. Uh, this will be a best-of uh, show that originally aired back in March, featuring, Co- featuring Corey DeAngelis, a marvelous interview and well worth your time. And, of course, Kate Daly taking us through from 2 to 5 this afternoon, Mountain Time. And then it is uh, the most comprehensive report that I know of. Uh, I don't know how he gets so much information and so many guests into two short hours. Liberty Roundtable with Sam Bushman. And Kurt Crosby. The guy's organizational skills are like ninja like (laughs) it's it's really quite incredible. But that's all what's ahead of us. Let's uh, let's jump into another subject here. This I thought was so interesting. Um, The war on drugs. Everybody's got an opinion on it. I, I have the opinion that it is actually in some cases doing more harm than good. And I would use this story as an example of the kind of harm that can be done. This is from the Wall Street Journal. Nope, I take it back. This is from the Washington Post. The headline, a young black football player was arrested after claiming cocaine, in quotation marks, in quotation marks on his car, was bird poop. Well, it was bird poop. Radley Balco, writing this opinion piece, says, chalk up another one to the faulty drug field tests. The possession of cocaine charge has been dropped against Georgia Southern quarterback Shai Wirtz. The prosecutor in Saluda County, South Carolina, told the Savannah Morning News on on Thursday, August 8th. Al Ergel, deputy solicitor for the 11th Judicial Circuit, which includes Saluda County, told Wirtz attorney Towns Jones IV that these kinds of charges would not be pressed on his watch, Jones said. South Carolina Law Enforcement Division tests were conducted on the substance samples collected from the hood of Wirtz 2016 Dodge Charger. But the results confirmed that no controlled substance was present 
in the samples. I have not seen the results yet, Ergel said in a phone call Thursday night, but I was informed the test did come back and there was no controlled substance found. A native of nearby Clinton, South Carolina, Wirtz was charged July 31st with misdemeanor possession of cocaine and speeding after his silver Dodge Charger was clocked going 80 miles per hour on Chapels Highway at 8.58 that evening in Saluda County. Now, the speeding charge remains... But Wirtz, the Eagles' starting quarterback, was suspended from the team for two days before returning to practice on Sunday. Field tests taken by two different officers on the substances tested positive for cocaine with two different kits in two different spots of the hood. Now, the football team has since lifted the suspension, but Wirtz said the deputies who stopped him, he told them that the the substance on the, the hood of his car was bird poop. For that, he was widely ridiculed from fan sites to lifestyle sites to the New York Post. And I thought this was interesting. Wirt's own lawyer doesn't even think he should seek an apology, much less sue the Saluda County Sheriff's Office. They had a pretty pretty credible basis for pursuing and ultimately stopping him, and that's speeding, Jones said. Then they didn't do anything wrong by attempting to collect evidence or what they saw as evidence, even though they had no basis from looking at him and looking at the inside of his car, to think that he was transporting drugs. But still, they saw what they saw on the hood of his car and made a common-sense determination of what they thought it was, and they collected it. It tested positive, so they were acting within the bounds of the law at the time. Okay, let that sink in for just a moment. I don't know about you. I don't know, I don't know many drug runners. In fact, as far as I know, I don't know any. But I'm having a hard time believing that, yeah, we found the best way to move mass quantities of these drugs is to just basically set the drug out there on the hood of the car and go. Not even put it in a package, man. Just, you know, let it blow away. Because <laughs> that way, if you get stopped, you know, at best, they're only going to find some residue. Does that sound likely to you? Or is the fact that maybe one or two passing birds dropped their calling card on this guy's car hood and that uh, police officers who pulled him over saw a young black man driving a powerful car at night... Clearly speeding. Maybe they mistook their credentials for a fishing license and thought, hey, maybe we should do a little checking around. Maybe that gotcha mentality just kicked in. Well, cocaine is white. There's kind of a whitish substance there on the hood. What is that? Shall we test it? Oh, look, it tested positive. I find it interesting. That the lawyer says, well, it tested positive, so they were acting within the bounds of the law at the time. That sounds pretty sketchy to me. Field tests can be notoriously unreliable. Now, that doesn't stop police departments from using them, of course. And it also doesn't mean we shouldn't we should just shrug it off when someone's falsely arrested, portrayed in the media as a drug user and then subjected to national ridicule because the police were relying on a test known to have a high rate of false positives. Radley Balco says, even putting the reliability issue aside, I have questions. He says, do the officers who pulled Wirtz over really believe that cocaine would remain on the hood of a car that was being driven at 80 miles per hour? What manner of consuming cocaine would cause the cocaine to stick to the hood? I'm having a difficult time imagining any interaction with the drug that would result in portions of it being stuck to the hood of the car in a manner that could withstand the wind at 80 miles an hour. Given all of that, why would these deputies see a white substance on the hood and immediately assume it was cocaine? 
rather than the dozen or so other more likely explanations. Have they ever mistaken bird poop for cocaine before? Why would they decide there was a substance that needed to be tested at all? Is it possible they were influenced by, and he says, and I'm just spitballing here, the fact that Wurtz was a young black guy driving a sports car? And he says, even if it was cocaine, how did they plan to tie it to Wurtz? It would be one thing if the powder was inside the car, but they were prepared to hold the man liable for a substance on the outside of his car and could have come from anywhere. Radley Balco says, if I were Wurtz, I'd consider getting another lawyer, maybe one who's a little more skeptical of local law enforcement. And by the way, he does provide a pretty interesting list here of substances that have resulted in false positives for these field tests for drugs. You ready for this? Sage, chocolate chip cookies, motor oil, spearmint, Dr. Bronner's magic soap, tortilla dough, deodorant, billiards chalk, patchouli, All right. Well, you know, they got patchouli. There's probably a doobie somewhere in the car. But anyway, flour, eucalyptus, breath mints, loose leaf tea, Jolly Ranchers, vitamins, Krispy Kreme donut glaze. I remember that story. Air. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Tylenol. Just about every brand of chocolate at your local convenience store. Drywall. B.C. powder, cotton candy, powdered sugar, and now bird poop. Look, if, if somebody could make the case to me, this is actually making us safer. Pulling people over and, you know, tossing the car and looking for something, anything that we can hang them out to dry on, that is making us safer. I don't think it is. I think it unnecessarily puts the officers at risk. It certainly puts the motorist at risk. Not to mention the the risk of false arrest. I know it's no big deal because it didn't happen to you and it didn't happen to me, right? Sucks to be him, but, but it's his problem. I'm just asking you to connect the dots, though. If it can happen to him, it can happen to you. Because what's at stake here isn't uh, whether or not, you know, is it reasonable to believe a young black man driving a sports car might be in possession of illicit substances? No, I don't think that's unreasonable at all to suspect that. But outside of some very solid probable cause, no police officer should be interfering with him, with him whatsoever. And simply being black and driving a sports car isn't going to cut it. And making the leap to, well, there's a white substance on the car, we better test it. And then getting a false positive test and going ahead and hooking the guy up. I mean, I want I want to give the benefit of the doubt to these officers. But it just seems to me that it was so opportunistic and well, okay, it didn't happen this time. But how is that okay? In 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 what moral universe does that equate with, well, you know, that's that's how justice is served? Because I don't think justice got served. I think it sounds a lot more like injustice. And I'd like to know what what would be a reasonable approach that would say, let's not make that happen again. Hey, I'm open to suggestions. I don't claim to have all the answers here, but if it was your kid, would you be okay with, well, it was a good learning experience. 
Did it teach him how arbitrary and power-hungry government can become? Because that's a lesson I think my kids would take away from it. This is the Loving Liberty Program. I'm Brian Hyde. Appreciate you joining me, whether it's for the live broadcast or for the podcast. We'll try to make it worth your while with some thought-provoking ideas and commentary. Here's one that, uh, this is an interesting question that uh, I was just talking about with one of my kids earlier uh, this last weekend. And that is uh, the, the necessity of two parents working. My kids have a hard time believing that I grew up in a home where dad worked, mom stayed home with us, and uh, we didn't have a clue what a latchkey kid was until I was in probably eighth grade, seventh, eighth grade, somewhere around there. That's just the way it was. And there's a great article on the American Institute for Economic Research's website, AIER.com, from Donald J. Bordreau. Have two-income households made us poorer? Now, there's an interesting question. You would think, well, you add another income, hey, hey, you're going to be in a whole new tax bracket, which may be true. (laughs) You might be. But that doesn't mean necessarily it's going to lift you out of poverty. Here's how Donald J. Bordreau says it. He says, two weeks ago, I argued that assertions of American middle-class economic stagnation are deeply mistaken. In reality, America's middle class is thriving and even growing more prosperous. Alas, across the political spectrum, optimistic assessments of the condition of America's middle class are unpopular. Many people simply do not want to believe that ordinary Americans today are, on the whole, immensely more prosperous than were ordinary Americans when LBJ or Gerald Ford worked in the Oval Office. Why this passion for pessimism continues to burn so hotly, he says, is something of a mystery, perhaps one worth exploring in a future column. But this time around, he says, I offer yet further reasons to celebrate the economic fate of America's middle class. Now, one of the first things he points out is America's middle class is shrinking. That's a complaint we encounter constantly. But he says it's shrinking because not because middle class Americans are becoming poor, but actually because middle class Americans are becoming rich. No one has been as resolute in documenting this fact as has American Enterprise Institute economist Mark Perry, who, full disclosure, was in the late 1980s one of uh, Donald Bordreau's research assistants at George Mason University. And he talks about a graph that Mark included in a recent post at his superb blog, Carpe Diem. It shows that the percentage of middle America, middle-income Americans... Let's try this again. Middle income American households fell from 53.8 in 1967 to 51.2 in 1977 and then to 41.3 in 2017. Middle income households are defined as those whose annual incomes are between $35,000 and $100,000 when measured in constant $2017. Now, that fact taken alone seems kind of ominous. But he says it's not ominous at all. Over the course of these same 51 years, the percentage of high-income American households, those earning annual incomes of more than 100000 again, measured in constant $2017, dollars, 
more than tripled. It went from 9.0% in 1967 to 13.9% in 1977, and then by 2017 to 29.2%. The percentage of poor American households over the past half century fell from 37.2% to 29.5%. Now, a common response to this happy data is, well, of course, household income is higher because there are more women working today than in past decades. Household incomes are bound to be higher. But he says there are three reasons, two minor, one major, why this response does not discredit the argument that ordinary Americans are becoming more prosperous. First, a minor reason. It's true that a much larger percentage of working-age women are in today's American workforce than was the case for most of the past. But he says women's participation in the labor force peaked about 20 years ago. Today it's about where it was in 1995, and yet the percentage of high-income households is today higher, and the percentage of low-income households lower than in 1995. So higher household earnings are not the result exclusively of more women working. A second relatively minor reason is that the number of people in the typical American household is today lower than in the past. With any given amount of household income now being shared by a smaller number of people than in the past, each person's share of income today is higher. Okay makes sense. Now, here's the third and major reason. More women today are able to work in the market than in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s because of this market-driven reality. Many goods and services that were once most efficiently produced in-house by stay-at-home wives, goods and services like meals, clothes laundering, and ironing, and house cleaning are today produced more efficiently either outside of the household such as tasty and nutritious prepared meals of the sort that in the past were much less available to ordinary Americans than they are today, or within households in ways that today consume far less time and effort than was needed in the past, such as washing and ironing clothes and cleaning cookware and dinner dishes. Now, he also points out there have been many big improvements like increased availability of automatic dishwashers, frost-free freezers, microwave ovens, robotic vacuum cleaners. There have even been small improvements like coffee makers that can be set to turn on and off automatically. Plastic sandwich and freezer bags with built-in easy seal tops, wrinkle-free and stain-resistant fabrics, and falling clothing prices, which reduce the need for mom to mend the likes of torn and worn shirts, pants, and coats. Oh, and he says, let's not overlook this time saver. Greater reliability of appliances, which means less need for someone to wait at home for repairmen. In short, he says, housewives today still get the valuable goods and services once produced by non-income earning stay-at-home wives. But households now get, in addition, whatever other goods and services are purchased with incomes earned by women who work outside of the home. Now, Donald Bordreau says you combine the above facts with one more. Expenditures on food as a share of family disposable income in the U.S. have fallen significantly. In the mid-1960s, a, family, a percent of family disposable income spent on food was right around 15%. In the mid-1970s, it was about 13 Today, he says American families spend on food less than 10% of their disposable incomes, despite the fact that Americans now eat a much higher percentage of their meals at restaurants. Ordinary Americans are indeed much richer today than they were during any imagined past golden age. Yes, yes, I know, he says. What about the cost of education, housing, and health care? Haven't they risen? 
Yes, he says they have. But he says, for reasons I'll explain in a follow-up column, these cost increases should cause us to want to rely more, not less, on free markets. How's that for an interesting slant? Let's go to the phone. Hi, welcome to Loving Liberty. Hey, Brian, good morning. Hello, Sam. How are you? I'm well. Uh, I would disagree with two parts of that article. Um, One... Yeah, it's more efficient because the food's being able to be uh, made more efficiently outside the home, but are they necessarily really wholesome foods? You know, we're we're dealing with a lot more processed foods, a lot more than ever. I remember seeing, when I was growing up, TV dinners and stuff. That was one of the big start of the processed food uh, era when uh, I was growing up, and I'm sure you remember them, too. And, uh, but... Are they wholesome? That's the problem. Are they really good as far as nourishment is concerned? Okay, and that's one of the problems compared to when uh, when uh, mom could cook stuff at home. In fact, I long for the days when uh, when I would eat chicken instead of fried chicken being in vegetable oil being in lard, as an example of that. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. The other thing is our appliances are built more with planned obsolescence and. Um, I mean, if you shop real hard, you can find something that's built good. But for the most part, like our wash dryer downstairs, I mean, is a perfect case in point, the one that we have. Um, uh, it's one of those I wish we'd never gotten. It's built extremely cheaply, uh, and it's the same price that we would have paid for a real good one back when my parents were alive. And it's all it's all plastic, plastic transmission gears, plastic this and plastic that, all designed to wear out. And as an appliance guy told me, he said, you, you don't fix them anymore. It's far cheaper to throw them away than it is to fix them. So what are we doing now? We're um, On the one hand, we're crying about the environment. Oh, the environment. Oh, the environment. Then on the next thing, we're, we're making stuff that's designed to be thrown into the environment when we're done with it. Uh, you make a good point. And, and I, I say this as someone who is... Uh, probably going to be in the market for a new washer and dryer here sooner than later i I, i'm I'm a little bit leery because i don't want to buy something i have to turn around and replace in just a few years well i can tell you now it depends on uh, and i and what i'm about to tell you is in no way i had nothing for this because i haven't even bought anything from them yet but i've heard a lot of good stuff about them a lot of the uh, a lot of the preppers uh you got time where I can hang through the break? Actually, this, this is our last segment, so we may have to pick this up in a future show. Yeah, why don't we do that? Okay, Sam, great to hear from you. Thanks for the call. This is Loving Liberty. Stand by. Beth Ann is on the way after news. Timely, credible, thoughtful discussion without the partisan outrage. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. 